Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Mark and Sarah talk about songs. They talk, talk, talk about, talk about songs. <laughs> Those tender sounds are just perfect for getting fisted in the back room of the manhole. All of that will make sense in a second when I... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You know, for kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Welcome to episode 178 of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. I am your co-host, Mark Blankenship, and with me today, always, forever, yesterday, and in a land before time, is my scooptacular co-host, Sarah D. Bunting. Hello, Sarah. Hello. <laughs> now, Sarah, you brought in the song that we're going to be discussing today, which I think similar to the way that you are always the one who brings in musical theater songs for us to discuss, would surprise <laughs> listeners. I think if you were to put this song on a piece of paper without attributing which one of us chose it, people would assume it had been me. But it was you. Enough foreshadowing. What is that song? Um, that song is The Village People's Macho Man. I ordinarily, this is the part where we talk about why we selected the song, and I feel like I never have anything to say. Like, the the selections just, like, come to me. <laughs> You're just the vessel. And I don't write down why or when, and then when I am confronted with my thought process, it's like, process is a little <laughs> strong. <laughs> also thought um, you're just a you're just a vessel for divine vision you're like joan of arc uh yes i mean i i hope no i'm like four times her age by now and also uh, I, I hope that you die peacefully in your sleep at the age of 104 um yeah that's the dream uh I have always loved the village people, even the resurgence of YMCA at like sporting events um, and the Yankee Stadium grounds crew doing it for like 25 years now has not managed to ruin the village people. Do they still do it? I maybe. Wow. I remember seeing it. Yeah. And it's so perfunctory at this point. They're like using suggestions of hand signals by now because they're also you know trying to work (laughs) and like redo the infield and it's like why why are we forced to do this it's like that uh restaurant johnny rockets that has the little jukeboxes on the tables and if you play certain songs all of the staff are required to dance and yeah i remember one time being in one of those um with some members of my family who were like, this is fun. They really enjoy it. And I remember thinking, no, they don't. Everyone no. should feel embarrassed by what's happening. I guarantee you they do. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're already working at a mall version of a an ersatz diner. Yeah. <laughs> what could make this worse? Compulsory, f- like, dance moves. Compulsory sure. Macarena is actually a, a circle of hell that even Dante was too afraid to write down um speaking of the macarena is a phrase i'd never thought i would uh, (laughs) would say but speaking of the macarena and yankee stadium i was at a yankee game in like i guess we can look this up when this record was set but they had the entire stadium do the macarena so that we could all together set a world record for the biggest number of people who had done the Macarena, I'm sure it was broken minutes later at a soccer stadium in 
like Bolivia, which would hold 120,000 people. But yes, I was I was part of a group effort wow. to set the Guinness Book. I would assume record. that had to have been somewhere between 96 and 98 because that was the, I'm pretty sure it was 98. That that was the only time when anyone might have given one salty damn about that particular dubious world record. But we rehearsed wow. my friends and I. Yes. Okay. That's commitment. But this yeah. brings us back to the village people. Actually it doesn't, but I'm just forcing that segue. I mean, it, it <laughs> sort of does in like in the compulsory dancing sense, because we've just been talking about uh, venues or situations in which you have to dance. And when I hear Macho Man, I have to dance. Let's hear a clip and then discuss. I was just fully bugging out. That's that squeaking you heard was my desk chair. <laughs> In addition to being a fucking bop, which it is, there is something about this song. Like, actually, everyone does want to be this kind of macho man, even some ladies, because this vocal, which is uh, Victor Willis, who is the cop, sometimes the like army navy guy, but usually the cop. This is such a joyful, proud vocal in all the senses of the word proud. And there is something like it's joy, but it's also defiance. And it is an answer to everyone who would have gay men, gay men of color, trans men, anyone whose loves and thoughts are inconvenient to them to like disappear. It just refuses to accept this and instead it invites you to admire and pay attention Mm. and this woman identified person who just because of the world we live in has often felt like people would prefer it if i would shut the fuck up take up less space take up less air i have always appreciated this idea in this song and in the village people's catalog generally and in disco overall we've talked about it many times that to be who you are is a basic human right that actually improves everyone's world so this song is an anthem of you know this is who i am here's my chest hair here's my you know Tom's Finland mustache. And then from he- by hearing it, my life is made better by the by the pride of someone else. Also, it's a great fucking song. Those horns are amazing. Yeah. 
I'm there's so much to say about the village people. Oh my god, where to begin? First, let me say I agree with you. The casual, light-hearted way that this song and all of the other village people songs that we know goes about uh, staking a claim on being proud of yourself is very delightful. There are obviously ways that one could be more strident about saying, I will buck your expectations of my masculinity and still be a macho man. But they chose yeah. to do it in a way that's really fun and makes everybody's booty bounce. And There, there is a little shade on the word lifestyle yes. that I always enjoy that you can almost hear... Uh, Mr. Willis rolling his eyes a little bit, a little bit on that one, like lifestyle. And okay, I, I just really do appreciate when I talk about the songs that I know by the Village People, and I think the songs that most of us know. I mean, Macho Man, YMCA, In the Navy, Go West. Those are the four yep. songs that we know. I mean, God bless you if you're listening right now and you're like, but what about this? You know what? You're right. There are other songs, but those are the four that I think we're really talking about. I think so. Those songs are all so much fun. They have really, they're just great songs. And that, as we have often said before, is often the best victory. Just make your point with a great song and you win. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about the Village People is that they were able to smuggle so much borderline explicit gay male sexuality into the popular consciousness. Yeah. And uh, for the listeners who might not... In that they become these, like, things that happen at sports ball events. Yes. The fact that the Yankees get people to sing YMCA, which is a song about having sex with anonymous men at the YMCA, that is what the song is about. It's not yeah. even subtext. It's just text. No. <laughs> it's, it's super text. It's footnotes. It's everything. And yet now... Millions and millions of bros are like, why? And then at every wedding in from 1984 to 2004, your Auntie Louise, who had maybe squeezed herself into that purple dress and she shouldn't have, she Uh. was up there doing it. Your little Uh cousin Cuckoo was over there doing it. Everybody was doing it. Yeah, they they know all the they know all the choreography. I, I really wanted to have a note here completely facetious about how cotton eye joe is about the forbidden love <laughs> between <laughs> two men down on the farm but uh i couldn't i couldn't get it there anyway so you've got these dope hits and then for listeners who might not know the village people they were created essentially assembled by a french producer named jacques Moral. No, Morali, sorry. Jacques Morali, Morali, whatever. His name was Jacques M. We'll call him that. He created (laughs) this group of uh, male disco singers and had each one of them play a role that was a hyper-masculine archetype. And uh, there was, as Sarah mentioned, the cop, who was also sometimes a soldier. There was a cowboy, a construction worker, a an Indian chief in the parlance of the time. He would not Mm. make the cut today um, for good reason. A motorcycle leather daddy and, Mm -hmm. and um, another soldier over there in the corner. And the, the point is that these archetypes were references to the types of archetypes that were popular in gay culture at the time. 
you mentioned Tom of Finland. There's also a photographer named Bob Miser who created a lot of photos uh, uh, of men performing these archetypes. Tom of Finland is drawings. Bob Miser is photos. And then there were all of these beefcake magazines that were what people used to subvert the ban on mailing pornography uh, in uh, the U.S. Postal Service. So they would mail these fitness magazines, and it would be mm. all these oiled-up men in these poses in their little G-strings lifting weights, but that's not what they were there for, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the fact that... <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I'll explain it to you when we're oh, not recording. Oh, I get it. <laughs> but the fact is that these are heightened caricatures, and therefore there's a comedy and a camp to them, but they are also explicitly about sex. And one of the things that has often frustrated me, both on this podcast and in my life, is that depictions of gay men often neuter the sex out of the depiction because it still makes the culture uncomfortable to see men be sexual with each other. I saw the movie Call Me By Your Name in an art theater in Midtown Manhattan, and when the two characters, the two male characters, started going at it in, honestly, a rather PG way, all of these people around me were either laughing or making sounds of disgust. And this was at an art theater in Manhattan like two years ago. So the concept of male sexual uh, interaction is still very hard for a lot of people to take. But the village people took it to such an extreme. And the reason I made a joke about getting fisted at the manhole is because that's the kind of thing that the leather daddy character would do. And here yeah. we are getting everybody in the world to be like, I'm gonna lube it up, lube it up. And it's just amazing to me. I actually feel like it is a pop culture miracle that this happened. And again, I say, because I don't care who's singing it, aliens, dolphins, Donald Trump could record a version of In the Navy, and if it sounded like this, we'd be like, oh, God, that guy is the worst, but damn, In the Navy. And the other thing that I find so fascinating, because I really went deep on the research for this episode, in the late 70s and early 80s, people knew. I found a Washington Post article about the village people from the moment that In the Navy was popular in 1979, and they were obviously in the Washington Post aware that this was a gay group. They talked about it explicitly, like overtly. And yet, even though that was true, the Navy at the time was using In the Navy as a recruitment <laughs> song. And they, they said that they were getting soldiers, I mean, sailors around the country to like learn choreography for this. And I just feel like every gay man and boy at that time was having that sexual fantasy and it was coming true. I just think that that makes the village people incredible. Thank you for bringing this in, Sarah Bunting. You are welcome. Uh, I think that there is so much of disco that, and unfortunately, I just have not had time to do all the um, deep reading that I want to do about the many things that disco smuggled into the culture. And like after that, how the culture sort of um, knee-jerked disco away Yes, after a while. That it was like, this is too much gay and too much drug. Too much, and, too much black people being empowered. Yeah, like to, that's too much boy with lipstick. Now we're uncomfortable. And so we're going to track over to 
punk and back to southern rock and uh, heavy metal, even though there is so much about 80s metal that is genderqueer. Yeah. That, and, you know, that to the point where there's, you don't need to point it out. Like, the groups were called shit like Cinderella. Point, uh, Twisted had, Sister. Yes. And you you do have some people in those groups who are extremely aware of the evolution there. And then you have some other people who are like, what? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> well, it's fascinating, too, because uh, disco music is very often about the empowered sexuality of women and gay men. Yeah. Sometimes subverted sometimes overt but the it's a song like i feel love by donna summer or love to love you baby and we'll be talking about donna summer soon enough but donna summer is in control of her sexuality in those songs in a way that doesn't actually need male approval or male gaze and i think that that's the kind of thing that also really even today still sets people on on edge it's like wait it's not a song about me banging her i guess i better be mad about it but then I've also thought it was always thought it was so fascinating that the disco backlash happens and then you get a few years of like really shitty soft rock pop and then somehow Dolly Parton too, thank God. But then by <laughs> like 83, 84, you get all of those British artists like Culture Club, Wham, Flock of Seagulls, Bronsky Beat, like all of that queerness comes back somehow. And I always feel like it, it's just fascinating to me that in the disco aftermath we still got that like super super gay british music there for well, a while as and well. duran duran and prince oh god prince yes kind of being like i am but you know here i am in my purple velvet military jacket and a mustache and eyeliner and there's no butt on these chaps and deal yeah with it. fight me and everyone's like no because you're awesome yeah i'm also a genius what are you going to do? Yeah. It's just, I guess, actually, as we're talking through it, it's it's reminding me that it's good to for me to avoid sweeping pronouncements about what happened after disc, the disco backlash. I do think we're right that it was a misogynistic and homophobic backlash, but it didn't succeed in burying queerness or burying femininity in the realm of popular music. It just had to go away for like two years and then come back in a slightly modified form. Well, and I, I want, I'm wondering now, as I have often wondered on this point that, you know, as the disco wave is receding or being pushed back or walled off by the culture, it's at around the same time that you have the first cases of, uh, grid as it was called then, um, being reported and when you look at the populations that hiv and aids decimated it's gay men people of color and drug users and who is more likely to get aids from to like have aids passed to them through sexual contact amongst heterosexuals women so uh, i wonder how culturally that would have proceeded that this um like ideas of masculinity uh the the bonding of women and the gay experience uh would have proceeded in pop music without 
the specter of AIDS. Yeah, you know, I was... We're I'm not sh- sure it relates at all, but it's something that I thought of. We're sharing a brain because I was about to bring this up too. Because the famous Disco Sucks Night in Chicago at a baseball stadium, which was done as a promotion by some stupid radio disc jockey, happened in 79. So I that was, was Cleveland, no? Cleveland, sorry. Whatever. I mean, I think there were a bunch, but, but yeah. The, the famous one that became a riot that involved the destruction, basically, of the field because they were paying people... Well, the, the promotion was, if you bring a disco record that we can destroy on the field at Disco Sucks Night, you get in for free or whatever. So Yeah. And then people, like, stormed the field and, you know, it was... It's, there, were, there was fire, yeah. It's it probably... Good. It's hard to say how much of what they were doing uh, was... Excuse me, you were correct. It was at Comiskey Park. It was probably a um, Bill Vec production. Um, see also when the White Sox were wearing shorts. So, well, I'm wrong. About a baseball thing. Mark just knew a baseball thing. You guys, that's the end of the podcast. Goodbye. I I know. Goodbye. It's been fun. I I think I was confusing it with with free beer night, and I'm pretty sure that was Cleveland. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, uh, we've reached absolute zero now, so there's nothing left to say. Um, But I I read recently uh, an interesting analysis of that night, and the writer was saying it's hard to know how much of that riot was fueled by just people being really drunk and being general assholes, and how much of it was fueled by anti-disco, misogynist, homophobic rage. But as a cultural touchstone, it is hard to overlook. And I think that the resurgence of that queerness in pop music, both in heavy metal, like you said, and in actual queer groups like Wham! and Culture Club probably really was hurt by AIDS. Because by the late 80s, you've got Poison wiping all the makeup off. You've got Guns N' Roses coming out of a very different place. Like, aesthetically, there started to be a sense of... uh, danger around that type of uh queerness and then you had to have someone like madonna come along you know then you've got like a lot of powerful female artists who are refusing to deny what's happening and but it takes on a different slant it's it's not as innocently celebratory um so it's all it's 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 an interesting thing and there's no denying that aids radically altered (laughs) so much but certainly yeah. pop music. Just this idea that um, that uh, pride in and ownership of your sexuality, whatever that was, whether it was uh, being gay or um, not being a quote-unquote good girl, yeah, that the universe was like, oh, really? Boom. And that's so, the other thing, though. It makes me think now of the Susan Sontag disease as metaphor essay where she warns us against putting metaphorical power on diseases because as a culture we decided that because gay people were the locus of a lot of the AIDS crisis that they were it was because of their sexuality that they got the disease you know like right AIDS doesn't care AIDS will infect anyone as we can see right now where the people are still getting it all over the world but it's just like that was also if AIDS had started as a disease that was being spread among heterosexual people, the response to that disease would have been very different as well. And that's just like, Oh, sure. The disease doesn't care, but we sure did. And, uh, 
Uh, yeah. Well, and the, un, you know, one of AIDS's insidious is insidious effects as a cultural force was that it was so prone to this particular metaphor or like yes. symbology set. So, and again, we've got a Donna Summer episode, the bug. We've got a Donna Summer episode coming up next week and all of this will come up again. But, um, one of the things that throws a wrinkle into this whole conversation, but in a fascinating way, is the fact that lead singer and chief songwriter Victor Willis, who Sarah has mentioned already, was straight, and during the time that the Village People was having all their hits, was married to Felicia Rashad. Now, she wasn't Felicia Rashad yet, because she hadn't married Ahmad Rashad. She was Felicia Ayers Allen, like she was on the first season of The Cosby Show, but she was married to the lead singer of the Village People! Man. What do we do about that, Sarah? Um, well, let's just talk about how her taste in men is basically impeccable. Like, <laughs> I don't know what went down in the Victor Willis marriage, and sometimes people just aren't ready for each other, but she could really find herself some talented foxes, that lady. Yeah. And was one herself, of course. Of course, and remains so. But yeah, mm. I just think it's one of the most interesting things about this seminal, and I use that word in every sense gay group <laughs> that the lead singer and chief songwriter wasn't gay yeah because being I, I don't know because queerness is like bigger than who you have sex with but also it doesn't not include that um also is this a good time for us now to talk about the infamous 1980 village people movie can't stop the music <laughs> i mean i guess we can <laughs> I really feel like we should save that for a it, like its own discussion. Oh yeah, you're right. You One know day what? and like rank the soundtrack and then really get into it and just get into I don't know Steve Gutenberg's joy at being alive and his overalls <laughs> with no shirt on underneath. Oh, not mad about it. I mean, yeah. Um, and just Valerie Perrine, like you can just see the faint glint of cocaine yep. on her nostrils. It's the only thing that explains anything about this movie, truly. So it's just, again, though, so interesting that the Village People made a, an infamously terrible movie that still hangs on in the culture. Like, they've really had a lasting impact, considering that they only were releasing hit songs for about 11 months. Like, they yeah. really hung on. Yeah. As as well they should have. Yeah. Um, I, and I just think Macho Man, I mean, I I feel like it was in commercials for, like, Flintstones vitamins and stuff like that. Like, I feel like they were, like, you know, for kids. Like, I know we were joking about it at the top of the episode, but, like, these were cultural figures that were for everyone. Yes. In this way that was both um, extremely welcoming and appropriate and extremely subversive and fucked yes. up and i love that it's like going to your local bar called the eagle and getting the chief leather daddy to come host a children's show yeah um and he's just like squeaking around on the set <laughs> like his leathers are just like it's time to visit uncle popper's playhouse (laughs) is it (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, but if you think about the vibe of most kids shows, which is like extremely garish, antic, like it's, it's kind of perfect. I will never recover from Uncle Popper's Playhouse, which had to have been a working title for Pee Wee's Playhouse at some point. I mean, really. <laughs> good old emil nitrate <laughs> oh it's my look it's my neighbor emily nitrate <laughs> oh my god yes i mean i'd watch that oh shit and the other thing is like kids i mean if the if kids were watching like a village people cartoon show that's like village people 2200 ad and they're in space or like they're actually hosting the show kids kids can see things i mean kids can see things that they can't name like they understand things that they don't have words for but they also are like much more elastic in terms of accepting that stuff Mm -hmm. and they'd just be like it would be up to a parent to be like oh dear those (laughs) are butt cheeks it's 7 30 in the morning Kids would just be like, butts are funny. Like, butts are sort of funny. And that actually reminds me of why I liked Pee-wee's Playhouse so much. Because that show, Paul Rubens was not a children's comic when he started his career. And Pee-wee Herman was not a children's character when he first created him. And you could feel that madness and that wildness underneath the, the surface of that show. Yeah. But then kids were perfectly, like, this is absolutely something, like, to name a chair, Cherry. Yep. That's, like, 95% of children. Like, why not Clocky? Sure. Mm-hmm. My teddy bear. That was, like, all my stuffed animals were, like, Pink Bear, Brown yep. Bear. <laughs> my teddy bear was named Teddy. Uh-huh. My rabbit, who I still have in my parents' house, he was gray with maroon overalls. His name was Carrots. Mm-hmm. Carrots was amazing, by the way. Carrots. Yeah, um, my father had a stuffed bunny uh, whose ears had to be reattached repeatedly because he never quite learned not to carry it around by the ears. It's in <laughs> every picture of him taken in 1943, and uh, it was named Mr. Bunny. Yep. When not Mr. B, Mr. Bunny. When I got chicken pox, my mom cut up a Band-Aid into little pink dots and put them on carrots so that he would get chicken pox, too. Oh. And when I broke my arm, my mom put a little splint on Carrots' arm. Like Carrots, oh. Carrots was ride or die with me. Like man, it was it was very important. Carrots, and I got to bring him with me into the hospital when I had to have um, nose surgery after I broke my nose in a bike accident. And I remember being very pleased that I was able to have him with me. I I love that we are now talking about stuffed animals. From the village After, people to... Fir- from fisting to stuffed animals. <laughs> to stu- because you know what? The village people contain multitudes. The last story I want to make sure I tell is that when I first moved to New York about 15 years ago, I ended up unexpectedly, and I don't even remember how, becoming Facebook friends with Randy Jones, who was the cowboy in the village people. Oh, no. I oh, remember yeah. why. Because Randy Jones was in an off-Broadway show that I reviewed, and the show wasn't very good, but he was pretty good. And I gave him a pretty good review in Variety. And so he contacted me on Facebook to say, hey, thanks for that. And so for a while, I was Facebook friends with Randy Jones. And he always came across to me as a very nice, friendly, cool guy. And I just want to say, 
I think that one of the reasons that the village people worked is because I think that the guys in the village people might have also been like pretty cool, which helped the persona that they were creating come across. Right. Who was your favorite village person? Just in terms of like, I'd hit that. Who's the most hittable village person? See, I know that this is like inappropriate for me to say because it's just the most racist one, but the Native American guy was hot. Yeah. And not a lot of clothes on. I was a construction worker girl. Oh, yeah. Oof. There's, not mad about there's that. like no wrong picks in that group. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, let's just let's see who shows up at the YMCA and take it from there. Um, Listeners, we actually we keep forgetting to remind you that we have a phone number. It's a Google voice number. You can call or text us on that number. We would love to hear from you about your favorite village person. Uh or really anything else pop music related that we talk about on the podcast, you can also leave us requests. Mark, can you hit us with that phone number? I sure can. And, and like Sarah said, leave us requests, ask us questions. We might even play them on the air. We would love to have you in our mailbag. You can reach us at 646-389-0767. That's 646-389-0-POP. I'm the invisible man. I'm the invisible man. Incredible how you can See right through me Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by Mark Blankenship and Sarah D. Bunting and edited by Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. Need to talk to Mark and Sarah about song requests, ads, or birthday readings? Email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, tweet us at talksongs, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. To become a supporter and producer of the podcast, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mastass. And as always, thank you for listening. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.